and what's going on everyone welcome to the program it is not your average boston sports podcast i am your host garrett hayden as always you can listen to our podcast on apple podcasts and on spotify you can follow our socials on twitter and on facebook it's so good to be good to be back with uh, you folks this week it's uh going to be a pretty loaded episode um, this week. Really looking forward to it. There's a lot of stuff to get to, uh, both, you know, with the Boston teams and with, um, you know, other news going on, such as the um, NCAA tournament for both the men and the women that gets underway this week. So definitely it will be a lot to to cover um, in that respect. Um, But uh, first, before we get going, I just want to say uh, extend a thank you to uh, Ben Baptiste who came on the show last week on To Guest Friday, and we talked about Patriots free agency. We're certainly going to cover some of that today. Um, but again, you know, huge thank you to Ben. Um, and also would like to extend a thanks to uh, Eric Bellier. Eric and I just recorded a new Guest Friday yesterday, so that will be out for you guys on Friday. So I'm looking forward to having you folks listen to that. It's a lot of interesting stuff. As uh, baseball is back, we are going to talk about the Red Sox, finally. But uh, just a great conversation with Eric, kind of going over, um, you know, some of the lockout stuff. And then, you know, spring training, which uh, has began, begun, and games start on Thursday. So it's going to be a pretty crazy uh, turnaround for, for Major League Baseball. So we are going to get to the Red Sox. We are going to get to the Patriots. But uh, we're going to start with the Celtics today um, and talk about the uh, great ceremony that took place um, following the Celtics' loss to the Mavericks. And yes, we're going to get to that game, but I just thought it made sense to start, you know, with uh, KG and start about the uh, great ceremony that took place at the Garden Sunday night um, after the game. Um, it just was really special. You know, I think any time that there is an event like that, a ceremony like that, you know, it really kind of hits you that, you know, being a fan of the Celtics and, you know, living in the city of Boston or the surrounding area, you know, it's so obvious that the the Celtics have such a rich history, you know, in terms of the uh, amazing players that have come and played for the Celtics and the just the history of the franchise. You know, you saw the families of, you know, legendary Celtics and you know, a lot of the, you know, living legends as well. And it just was such a, it it always just is so neat when there's an event like that, whether it's a a Jersey retirement or whatever, that, you know, the Celtics always put on, you know, a great event. And so I think that, you know, from, from Mike Gorman saying some opening things and Brian Scalabrini's interview with Kevin Garnett, I mean, it just was so special, you know, and then the, obviously the raising of the of uh, Kevin's retired number to the to the Raptors was, you know, really special, and I think that uh, it's just always such an amazing experience when something like that happens, and you know, you have the ability to to watch something like that and realize how much a you know individual player meant to the Celtics, and you know, you get reminded of so many different guys that are up there in the Raptors, and I think just the idea that Kevin was such a special player, you know, when he first came to the Celtics, you know, thinking of where I was in terms of being a fan when I was, 
you know, 12 years old or how, however, however old I was, you know, when he came to the Celtics, um, it kind of was like the Celtics had never made a move like that. You know, they had never made moves like that, you know, in the short time that I had been a fan, you know, you think of Paul Pierce and, you know, you think that he is, you know, this great player, but for so many years, it was like, you know, they're good, but they're not great. And then, you know, the fortunes all change when Ray Allen gets traded to the Celtics and then they bring in Kevin Garnett and you're like, whoa, this team just became really special overnight. And that's kind of how it seemed. You know, obviously the season seemed like a breeze. They won 66 games, you know, one of the highest win totals in NBA history. But, you know, as a lot of people will tell you, that playoff run was not easy. Going through 26 of a possible 28 games, but... I think one of the, the biggest takeaway for me is just how much Kevin changed the culture of this team. And I think immediately changed the culture from, you know, a young team that was kind of just hanging on, you know, and kind of waiting for, for Paul Pierce to get traded and bringing in someone like Kevin who immediately was like, you know, he brings this aura of intensity and, you know, we're going to do things the right way. And I think that it just was kind of amazing how that rubbed off on so many Celtics and it rubbed off on the fans, on the fan base. You know, I still remember that opening night, the Celtics played the Washington Wizards and KG was unbelievable. That came, they blew the Wizards out by 20 points and it was like, okay, this team is really, really good. I think that, you know, early out of the gate, you knew that they were going to be a special team. So, um, you know, obviously it's natural to think about this fact that the Celtics could have very easily won three championships in a row. But the fact that you could get one and the fact that, you know, Kevin means so much to the, to the organization um, just was really special. And it was really special to, you know, have that time to, you know, regale with the... <laughs> You know, some of the stories that Scalabrini, you know, had forced KG to retell, you know, the arm wrestling story, you know, it was always just so funny. Um, but I think, yeah, at the end of the day, it just was important to see that, you know, people love KG and, you know, <laughs> appreciate what he did for the franchise and kind of, you know, kick-started the franchise again, you know, because they really were going down a, a dark path, it seemed like, you know, with maybe a potential rebuild in the future, but Danny Ainge, you know, with the aggressive move and it, it paid off. So um, just a tremendous ceremony on Sunday night. It was just really special uh, to see that. Obviously, the game that had happened before the ceremony was uh, not exactly super fun. The Celtics uh, kind of falling apart in the last couple minutes. Uh, losing to the Mavs, 95-92, Spencer Dinwiddie hitting the game-winning three with about nine seconds left. Celtics held a three-point lead with two minutes left, couldn't hang on. Um, kind of just was an ugly game. You know, it was a game that the Celtics seemingly had control of. You know, going into the third quarter, Dallas scores 38 points, you know, and makes some big shots down the stretch, and you got to give credit to Luka Doncic. He was tremendous leading the game, you know, knocking down some shots you know, getting the lane open for, you know, Dinwiddie's winning three. And I think, you know, one of those games that I think 
it kind of creeps in that, okay, the Celtics certainly have been on a great run recently, and I think have been doing a better job at those kind of late game. <laughs> They've been doing a better job at those late game situations, and I think being able to come up with baskets when they really need it, and obviously that was absent on, on Sunday afternoon. So I think that, you know, oftentimes when you're going on a big run and you lose a game like that, it might honestly be a good thing because it could remind the team that, okay, you know, we still have things to work on despite, you know, winning 23 of 29 or 22 of 29 or whatever it was that, you know, you still have things to work on, you know, and I think you still have things to work on against good teams. Um, and it also kind of gave you an inkling as to this is how teams may defend Tatum in the playoffs. Um, you may have noticed that Dallas, especially late in that game, you know, aggressively double team Tatum. And I think for the Celtics, they have to be a team that can knock down shots when one of their guys gets doubled, you know, and forcing the defense to be like, okay, we really should think twice about doubling someone because it's going to open someone for an open shot. The Celtics missed a ton of those um, on Sunday. You know, Grant Williams, I believe, did not make a three-pointer. I believe he was 0 for 4, 0 for 5. You know, Derek White struggled shooting the ball, which has kind of been an issue for him all season, not just with the Celtics, but with the Spurs. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that concerns me, that I think the Celtics need to be able to rely on guys that can make shots after someone is double teamed, whether it's Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown or whoever it is. The Celtics need to be able to knock down shots. And I know that that is very simple, that there's not really a lot of analysis to that. But I think it really is that simple. Because as I said, you know, if you're playing against a defense that, you know, aggressively double teams someone like Tatum, he kicks it out to Marcus Smart, Derek White, whoever it is, and that player knocks down the three and does it over and over, then that defense is going to have to rethink their strategy as to do we really want a double team someone like Tatum. So I think they can't really make it more simple than that. I think guys just need to knock down shots. And I think that, yes, time to time, it's not going to happen. On time, time to time, you're going to have some bad shooting nights where guys just can't, guys just can't put it in the basket for whatever reason. Um, but I also think that being aggressive and getting to the basket is also something that's really helped them recently. And, you know, being able to have those free throw attempts, you know, in the high teens or even the 20s when you get late in the game so that you are, you know, forcing the defense to foul you. And I think for the Celtics to be a dangerous team in the playoffs, they have to be able to score in a multitude of different ways. I don't believe that the defense is going to be a problem for the Celtics in the playoffs. You know, I think that that is going to be one of the things that they hang their hats on, that they try to be the best defensive team out there. But defense only gets you so far if your offense can't can't find ways to score the basketball differently. You're not going to go very far. You know, if you have an offense that is just predicated on giving Jason Tatum the ball and him getting double teamed and kicking it out to guys who can't knock down shots, you know, you're going out in the first round. So I think for the Celtics to go deep in the playoffs, they need to have guys who can, you know, create offense off of those double teams. So 
it'll be curious to see, you know, if guys continue to, you know, do well at that. Because I think for the majority of the time, they've done an excellent job with that. It just wasn't the case on Sunday. So, you know, the only issue is that it's a good Dallas team. And yes, you're not going to see them until the finals if you make it. But, you know, you are going to see teams that are going to aggressively double-team Tatum. You know, as Chris Mannix said in the, you know, post-game, and on the post-game show on NBC Sports Boston, that it's a copycat league and teams are going to look at the way that Dallas defended Jason Tatum and they're going to try to, you know, copy that and try to see if there's a blueprint to defending the Celtics. So it will be interesting to see how the Celtics rebound from that, uh, from that loss. You know, obviously... They have been playing good basketball recently, you know, obviously past that test the week before of, or two weeks ago, excuse me, with those great wins over the Grizzlies and the Nets. Celtics did follow it up with a win against the Hornets and then a win against the Pistons, but then obviously dropped a game to the Mavericks. You know, looking at the Celtics and their upcoming road trip, you know, this is truly kind of the last big road trip that they're going to have this season before the final three games of the regular season where, you know, it's likely that maybe the Celtics will have had a, a roster, a playoff spot wrapped up. And it may just be a matter of seeding, but there's some uh, difficult games on this road trip for the Celtics coming up uh, tomorrow night against Golden State. You know, anytime you're playing the Warriors, it's a... <laughs> It's gonna be it's gonna, it's gonna be a dogfight. The Celtics, um, I believe, had played the Warriors earlier in the season. For some reason, I cannot find the game. Now here it was. They did they played them back in December. Uh, four point loss. Tatum had twenty seven points in that game. So obviously, this is a team that you have not seen in a while. Obviously, this is a team that is very, very good, has had a great season. Klay Thompson has come back, and he's been a really good player for them. You know, they're definitely a dangerous team heading into the playoffs, but this is a good a measuring stick game for the Celtics, um, as, it, as the games were for them a couple of weeks ago with Memphis and Brooklyn, and the Celtics passed both of those um, with flying colors. So it'll be interesting to see how do they match up against Golden State on the road, how do they match up against Denver on the road. Uh, they'll be playing Denver Sunday night at 8, and then between Golden State and Denver, they're playing a game in Sacramento, and then the road trip finishes next Monday night with a game in Oklahoma City against the Thunder. So, an interesting trip. Two teams that are very, very good, and two teams that are definitely going to the playoffs, and two teams that are probably not going to go to the playoffs, and, you know, younger teams, so... I think for the Celtics, they really kind of have to continue to be focused because not only is this trip hard, but they have a number of difficult games coming up before the end of the season. You know, home games against Utah, Minnesota, Miami, and then you have road games against Toronto, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Memphis. Um, those last three are going to close out the season. So, you know, we'll see what the Celtics can do on this road trip. I think that it's an opportunity for them to prove that, you know, that Dallas loss was nothing more than just a blip, you know, that they can recover. Um, it's good. I think that they've gotten some, they've been, they're getting an extra day off today um, and don't have to play till tomorrow night. But I think 
it's a good Golden State team that you're going to play. So I'd be curious to see how they play. Um, I would like them to, you know, get back to being a attacking the basket offensive team um, in this Golden State game because you can bet that the Warriors are going to score a lot of points. Uh, Steph Curry, I think, recently just scored 47 in a game that may have been last night. So, you know, you got to have some way to, to, to keep up with uh, with that team and the way that they can score. Um, but I think that, you know, just to kind of finish off on the thoughts about this trip, I think that it's a road trip that if the Celtics can come out of it with three wins or four wins even, you know, it's something that can kind of give them some momentum as they close out the rest of the season. You know, go into more games that are going to be challenging you know, go into games that may be playoff previews, whether they're in the first round or later in the playoffs. So I think the Celtics' motivation has to be at an all-time high uh, to try to finish strong and try to, you know, continue on this run of good play that they've had for, you know, over two months. So I think, you know, big games on this trip, you know, really could be a season-defining road trip. So... Curious to see how they do. The game Wednesday night is at 10 o'clock in San Francisco against the Warriors. This is an ESPN game. So hopefully the Celtics can uh, play some good basketball and continue the uh, play of good basketball. So I think we're going to move on, talk about the Bruins. Um, I know this is kind of probably throwing people off based on the uh, news about the Patriots, but I promise we are going to get there. Um, but first, we're going to talk about the Bruins. Um, obviously, the Bruins coming off some games recently that they have uh, been unable to hang on to late leads. That trend continuing with the Kings' loss uh, last Monday as the Kings scored the game-tying goal with a minute left in, or under a minute left in regulation, and then scoring the winner in overtime. Uh, the Bruins kind of reversed that trend with the last two wins, you know, win against the Blackhawks on Thursday and the Coyotes on Saturday with late goals coming with under five minutes left in the game, the winner on Thursday from Pasternak with 20 seconds left. So, you know, I think uh, it's unfortunate that uh, late leads have become kind of an issue that the Bruins are having trouble, you know, holding those leads. You know, that's definitely something that needs to be fixed. You know, if the Bruins need to if the Bruins want to advance in the playoffs, uh, because that's not something that you can afford to have happen. Um, it's not really something you can play around with. You know, Bruins have lost a couple games recently where they're giving up a tying goal or they're giving up a winning goal. And, you know, that's that that's a trend that is uh, really not good, obviously. Um, but it was good to see the Bruins could kind of rebound from that and bring in couple of good offensive performances in the last two games. Granted, the two teams that they have most recently played are not exactly the cream of the crop of the league, but hey, you know, at this point in the year, two points is two points. Um, and beating a team like Arizona, who has been playing good hockey recently, you know, I think is a pretty quality win. And the Bruins have seemingly found a trio that's been able to help their scoring uh, which is kind of interesting because, you know, you look at David Pasternak and the trio of uh, Coyle, Smith, and Frederick, you know, mostly Smith, who's been scoring a lot of goals recently. 
it's kind of the first line that has kind of fallen off a little bit. They've not recorded a goal in a couple games. Jake DeBrusque, you know, after that hot stretch has kind of gone cold. He's not had a point in four straight games. I think Marshan's the only one that has a point in the last couple of games with an assist. So, you know, good to see that the secondary scoring is picking it up, but you obviously want your primary scoring to pick it up as well. But, you know, it's kind of just the ebbs and flows of the season. If the Bruins are getting goal scoring from places that they really need to, I think that that's what matters. You know, I think obviously you always want goals from Bergeron and Marchand. Obviously you always want goals from your top players. But at the same time, if you're getting quality contributions from other guys that I think you kind of are in more desperate need of, that's more important. You know, you look at what Craig Smith has done. You look at what Craig Smith has done in the last few games. You know, putting up putting up a lot of goals. You know, with the hat trick, obviously, in Vegas a couple weeks ago, and then the two-goal game um, against the Coyotes Saturday. It shows you that I think he is starting to find a little bit of a rhythm, which is great to see. And it is kind of funny. You kind of saw the same thing last year when... The Bruins brought in Taylor Hall, you know, and then they put him on the line with uh, Krejci and Smith, you know, and they found really good success with that with that trio, um, and it kind of was something that was successful, really, from the end of the season, or, or excuse me, from that trade until the end of the season, you know, I think that Smith's a guy that, you know, really you want him to find his game. And, you know, you have found a trio that's been really, really effective. You know, and even Frederick has put in some points. You know, Coyle's had some points, had a good goal. Um, got the game-winning goal on Saturday against Arizona. So I think, you know, good to see that that group is playing well together. Um, and, you know, good to see the Bruins getting a couple of bounce-back wins in the last two games. Um Obviously, the Bruins are great, fastly approaching the trade deadline, which um, is about a week away, is on Monday. There's certainly been a lot of uh, rumblings in terms of players that the Bruins may be interested in. Um, I think it's an interesting time because, you know, the Bruins are embarking on a road trip, you know, which we'll talk about in a moment, but I think... You know, it's funny that I mentioned, you know, Taylor Hall and the, the trade that kind of seemed to kickstart Craig Smith last year late in the season. You know, the Bruins are an offensive team that I think could be could be in need of an offensive jolt, you know, and bringing in someone of a high caliber. Maybe it's someone like Tomas Hurdle, um, because I think when you look at what the Bruins have done this season from kind of as an overall standpoint, I think that, you know, not that defensively they've been fine to say that, like, okay, they don't need any type of reinforcement because I don't think that that's true. I think that the defense has been pretty solid. I think that there's some people that I think are too quick to criticize certain players, you know, but I think some of the, the analytics and some of the numbers look good for some of the Bruins players, and I think, you know, 
there are a lot of people that I think are of the belief that what the Bruins need to do defensively is they need to get another top pair defenseman to play with McAvoy to try to take some of the some of the load off because I think as Ty Anderson has said a bunch of times on the Sports Hub Underground podcast, you guys definitely should listen. Should definitely listen to that. Um, that the Bruins really can't afford to have Charlie McAvoy playing 27, 28, 29, 30 minutes a night in the playoffs. And it's not to say that he can't handle it, but I think if the Bruins can bring in someone else that can play heavy minutes um, on the right side, because I think, honestly, that is more of a need than the left side. I think a lot of people think they need help on the left side because I think, I don't know, there's some people are of the belief that Mike Riley is, you know, a problem in his own zone defensively. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Um, but I think the biggest thing for the Bruins is depth. And that's the biggest thing in the playoffs. Um, and I think that while you don't necessarily have kind of an elite top pairing guy, you know, Grizzlick has been excellent this year when he's playing with McAvoy, but you don't have that kind of elite player that you would like. The Bruins do have a lot of depth. You know, you think about the guys who are currently in the lineup, Forbert, Riley, and Grizzlick. You have some other guys, like Jack Ashan, who played really well the other night. Um, I want to say it was the... I think it was the Chicago game. Yeah, I think I'm forgetting which game it was. But yeah, it was the Chicago game that he scored his first goal. Um, and it seems like every time that he has played, he's looked really solid. And it's looked like a guy who belongs. And I think... Having someone like that as a depth piece, having someone like Vakaninen as a depth piece, you know, assuming that he can be healthy and uh, the Bruins signing of Michael Callahan, um, who had previously played at Providence, played four years there. You know, you got some depth there on the, on the left side. Granted, it's not any, you know, guys who are the likes of Hampus Lindholm or Jacob Chikrin, you know, any of the guys the Bruins are interested in or presumably interested at the trade deadline, I think that the more pressing need for you is on the right side. Because currently, after, you know, McAvoy, Carlo, and Connor Clifton, you have nothing. Like, you legitimately don't have anyone else that, you know, I think you can count on in the playoffs. And so I think thinking about someone like Connor Clifton, who has played well at times for the Bruins, not going to take that away from him, but I think that he is better better used as an extra defenseman. I think he's better used as a defenseman who can come in when you need a jolt for a game or two. You know, someone that can give you a quick shot in the arm. And I think for the Bruins to prioritize defense at the deadline, you have to look at the right side. Because I think that, you know, yes, you have McAvoy, who's been excellent. Yes, you have Carlo, who I think is a better playoff performer. He's not had a good season this year. I think that that's pretty obvious based on anyone who's watched him. I think that he's going to be a better playoff performer. He was really good in the playoffs last year before he got hurt. And I think you need to have some more depth behind Carlo and McAvoy, who are probably going to play a lot of minutes. If the Bruins can get someone else that can play heavy minutes at that you know third-pairing right, right spot, and Clifton can come in off the bench. I think there can come in every so often when you need him. I think the Bruins could be set. I think trying to look at someone like Justin Braun makes a lot of sense for me because I think he's cheap. 
I don't think the Bruins would have to give up a lot to get him. He's someone who can kill penalties. He's a big body. He is on the older side, but he's durable and I think could be a guy who could play 20 to 22 minutes in the playoffs. And that's huge because you don't, in that, in that scenario, you wouldn't have to play McAvoy, you know, these heavy minutes against the elite guys. You could throw Braun out there to be someone else who could play heavy minutes for you. So I think in terms of defense, I think that second, I think the right shot D is more important for me than the left side, because I think the left side, certainly you don't have a lot of elite guys, but you have a lot of depth there. You really don't have any depth on the right side. So I think that that's something the Bruins need. Um, I think also, you know, Jake DeBrusque's name has been floated around a lot recently, you know, in terms of should the Bruins trade him? Should they not? You know, I think that some of the things that I've been seeing on Twitter is that the Bruins may indeed hang on to him. And I think there are some people right now that I think are of the belief that you have to trade him by the trade deadline. And I don't think that that's true. I think that you could trade him in the summer. I think that the Bruins could choose to keep him on the roster, see what he can do in the playoffs because he's had some playoff success in the past. You can keep him on this roster and see what he can do. He can kind of act as a rental player, if you will. And then the Bruins could see about moving him in the summer. Um, and I know that obviously they're can be some concern about the trade request that, you know, maybe it's it can affect his play. And I guess that that's a risk. But I think based on the way that he has played, I think has shown you that he has the ability to still be an impact player and still be a guy who can make a difference on that first line. You know, does that make a trade less likely? You know, I don't know. I think it makes it less likely for a winger. I don't know if it necessarily means that you don't go after someone like Tomas Hurdle. I don't think that that, you know, should stop you from doing that. Um, but it is kind of interesting. And I think, you know, sure, he has the trade request and still would like to be moved. But I think you still have some leverage that you could see what he does in the playoffs. Because, hey, best case scenario, you hang on to him. He has a great playoff run. The Bruins go deep in the playoffs. And then you could really sell high on him in the summer, you know, because I think, sure, there are some teams that are of the belief that maybe his, you know, recent hot streak was just a mirage and nothing else. But if he puts together a good playoff run, that could, you know, encourage some other GMs to be like, hey, let's take a chance on this guy. Um, so I think that seems to be the direction Bruins are going in right now. Um, so I'm going to be curious to see, you know, how that shakes out. And then in terms of the other kind of big need for me is the second line center. And I think as much as I think people want to focus on defense, I think that if you can upgrade at that second center spot and get someone like Tomas Hurdle, you know, you could put yourself over the top. You know, you could put yourself as a team that could really, you know, give a shot to get, could have a shot against a team like Tampa or a team like Carolina. Um, because if you bring in someone like Hurdle, you know, it gives you the distinct possibility that you can have two elite scoring lines and you can also have that third line that's been really good for you recently and the fourth line, which I think has been underrated 
in terms of how they've played. I think Nick Foligno has kind of started to find his role on the team and has started to be a pretty effective player, um, which, yeah, it's taken him a while, but I think that having a fourth line with the likes of him, Nosek, and Curtis Lazar, you know, it's a line that could, I think, really make a difference. And you have the third line playing the way that it is, you know, adding someone like Hurdle, I think, could make your could make your offense so much more dangerous and it could, you know, lead you to think that okay, the Bruins could roll four playoff lines the way that they did when they won the cup in two thousand eleven and almost did in two thousand thirteen. You know, that's what made those Bruin teams so good, is you could throw out any of those lines in any situation and feel comfortable about the job that they would do, whether it was getting a big goal, coming up with a defensive stop late in the game, or, you know, what what have you. So I think that that is, for me, the big area that I think the Bruins need to, you know, go really aggressive at, you know, go aggressively at someone like Hurdle, go aggressively at someone like JT Miller if he's available, which... He may not be considering how close Vancouver is to the playoffs. Um, but I think if I'm the Bruins, if it's, you know, anyone other like, if it's anyone other than Fabian Lysel, I think I'm okay with it. And that kind of includes Mason Lorai. Like, I think if the Bruins feel like they could sign Hurdle to an extension, I think it would be worth trading Lorai. And I know that that might be a crazy thought, but I think you have a huge opportunity right now to, you know, go in and make your make your team that much more dangerous five on five because I think that's the biggest need that this team has. I know a lot of people want to point to left side defense, but if you can't score goals five on five, you're not gonna go, you're not gonna go anywhere. You know, that is something that I think that that needs to be more of a priority, in my opinion. So you know, we'll see. Bruins, obviously, with um, the road trip upcoming, with uh, games tonight in Chicago, games tomorrow, or games tonight in Chicago, um, and in Minnesota tomorrow night. Game tonight is at 8.30. Game tomorrow night is at 7.30. Bruins then will play Friday at 8 against Winnipeg, and then they will host the, or excuse me, no, they'll be on the road against the Canadians on Monday day of the trade deadline so that will certainly be interesting but I think we will definitely have you know some type of trade deadline update uh, whether it's on Monday you know during our typical episode or you know uh, a guest Friday that may be a special edition that maybe we release earlier in the, <laughs> earlier in the week so definitely keep your eye out for that but you know, it's an interesting road trip. You know, you have two teams that are, you know, going nowhere with Montreal and Chicago. You have a team that is probably going to be a playoff team in Minnesota. And then a team like Winnipeg, who is kind of probably not going to make the playoffs unless they make a really good, a really good, a good run over the next couple of weeks. Um, so I think it'll be curious to see how the Bruins can perform in these games. So hopefully they can they will have turned the page from those, you know, late game issues that they've had. So be interesting to watch some of these games this week, see how they do. So, yes, we're now going to get to the Patriots. There's uh, quite a bit to get to with this team, um, with free agency 
or with the tampering period, I should say, starting yesterday, and teams being allowed to negotiate with players. Obviously, we all know what happened last year with the Patriots throwing out a lot of money at a lot of different players, um, you know, based on positions of need. And I know this is probably going to sound kind of condescending uh, when I say something this way, but I feel like in a way we do this every year that Patriot fans on Twitter get upset when the team is not making the moves that they want them to and, you know, starting to be concerned when the team doesn't spend the amount of money that they would like them to. And I'll just make it very simple. The Patriots had a lot of money to spend last year so they could afford to sign all these players. This year, the Patriots do not have as much money and so they have to be smarter about how they spend money. If the Patriots go into this, you know, offseason with not as much money as they did last year, they can't just throw it away all on one player. You know, you have to fill out a roster with, with players that, you know, are not as costly as other players. And it just is like, I don't mean to make it sound, you know, condescending, but at the same time, it's almost like, People forget about how the Patriots do things, that they typically are not a team that goes out and spends wildly. You see it every single year that there is one team that always goes out and spends a whole lot of money. The Patriots certainly did it last year, but it was because there was, but it was for a reason. The team had a lot of cap space, they had a lot of needs, and they went out and addressed and filled those needs. And lo and behold, they made the playoffs last year. And it just is like, you have to understand that the Patriots are not a team that is going to make bad decisions in terms of spending their money in free agency. Sure, you can make the argument that a couple guys they signed last year did not play up to the way that they should have, Nelson Aguilar in particular. But the Patriots, for the majority of those guys that they signed, they were key players. Matt Judon, Hunter Henry, Kendrick Bourne. Certainly there were some guys that underperformed. Johnny Smith is another guy, but I think that none of those signings you look at and say, that was a bad signing. You know, these guys did not contribute anything. And I just think this year the Patriots didn't have as much money. They really couldn't afford to re-sign J.C. Jackson. I know that a lot of us, including myself, wanted them to make it work. But I think when you look at the money that he got from, from the Chargers, 16 and a half per year, $40 million guaranteed, you know, sure, could the Patriots have could the Patriots have signed him? Yes, I think so. I think they could have made it work, but I think that they are taking a calculated risk here and saying, okay, if we let a high profile cornerback go, can we draft someone in, in April, that is a first or second round talent that can play for less money, can have be under team control for at least four years. Sure, is he going to or is he going to give you the same production? Whoever this player is, is he going to give you the same production as J.C. Jackson? Almost certainly not. But you also have to remember, J.C. Jackson was an undrafted free agent. If the Patriots draft someone in the first round, undoubtedly that player is probably going to be more well-equipped to be a starter on day one or be a contributor from day one. 
the Patriots have had success drafting guys, or I should say, on picking up undrafted free agents and letting them develop. J.C. Jackson is one of those guys. Malcolm Butler was one of those guys. And I just think, I just it's, it's just frustrating that it seems like we have this conversation every year about the Patriots letting go of key players. And, you know, they seem to be fine. They've been doing this for 20 years, and it seems to work. You know, it just is like, this is the way that they do things, and it just is like, I don't really understand the, the shock of people being like, oh, how come they're not, you know, spending money on this guy? How come they're letting this guy go? It's just like, I don't know. It's just, it's the way that they do things. And sure, you can be one of those people that doesn't like it. I mean, Ben and I talked about it last week. Sure, are there moments where we're like, okay, we wish the Patriots would make more of an effort to keep their own players? Absolutely. But I think you have to understand that the Patriots run the team like a business. And I know that that sounds bad, but like, at the end of the day, this is a business. And this is not something where you just have to re-sign your own players and keep them forever. I think at a certain point, you have to understand that there are, there, there are reasons for why they do things. Are the reasons absolutely clear right away? Not always. You know, I think, you know, this is me trying to rationalize why they why why they do the things the why they do things the way that they do and i don't want to be someone who's like okay i'm not going to criticize anything bill belichick does but hey you've won six super bowls doing things the way that you've done things and i don't know i mean that kind of tells me that it does kind of work so you know i wouldn't be super concerned that the patriots are not spending a lot of money in free agency because they, you know, A, don't have the amount of money that they had last year to spend. And B, if you don't have as much money, you have to be smarter about the players that you bring back, which I think the Patriots have been bringing back someone like Matt, like um, Brian Hoyer, someone who can be an extension of the coaching staff, can continue to be a mentor to Mac Jones, and can be someone, if, you know, situation arises can play if you need him to. Now, obviously, that's not the ideal scenario, but he's someone who understands the offense, has been around the team for years, and it makes sense to bring him back. Matt Slater can still play at a high level, is still a very respected guy in that locker room, and with a team that I think is still on the younger side and in kind of transition, bringing someone like him back to be a locker room guy makes a lot of sense. Devin McCourty, the very same reason. Great locker room presence. He can be a sounding board for the young defensive backs. The Patriots obviously have a big hole with J.C. Jackson leaving. Undoubtedly, they are going to draft one or two defensive backs. They have guys like Miles Bryant and Sean Wade who are probably going to have bigger roles this season. Having someone like McCourty He's a great communicator. He's someone that everyone respects in that locker room and is someone that can be key for that defense. 
that I think is going through a bit of a youth movement. So it's like there, there are reasons for why the Patriots signed these guys. Bringing back James Ferentz made sense because you, you know, obviously lost Ted Karras in free agency. You want to have some depth on the offensive line. And then obviously today, Patriots making the trade for uh, Mac Wilson from the Browns. He's someone who, like Chase Winovich, is in a contract year. Didn't, you know, kind of had an up and down year last year. Played mostly on special teams. But I think that Mac Wilson's someone who is more of a coverage linebacker than a pass rusher. And I think that that's what the Patriots need right now. People that are saying that the pick was wasted with Chase Winovich, people are not being truthful because that is not a wasted pick. Chase Winovich had 11 sacks in his first two seasons. I, I don't understand where that is coming from. Yes, did he play a lot on special teams last year? He did. He didn't make as much of an impact defensively. But to say that he's a wasted pick is basically saying that he did not contribute anything in his first three years, which is false. That is just blatantly false. And it just is like, I don't know. I think that there are certain people um, in the media or just certain people on Twitter that have particular axes to grind against certain players or against certain certain practices of how the Patriots do things. And it just is, is hard to take those people seriously when you know that they have a particular axe to grind. And it just is like, okay, what do we really know is, like, what really is the truth? And it just is like, at the end of the day, it's just opinions. And, you know, I think that, you know, I hope that all of you listening to my podcast know that the opinions that I have on this podcast are just opinions. And I'm not trying to tell you that, you know, things are right or things are wrong, but I will tell you that Chase Winovich's five and a half sacks in his first two seasons, that is not a player that is a wasted pick. Like that does not make sense to me. So just to go back to the trade, I like it because I think they're prioritizing a need in terms of coverage linebackers, which, you know, I think that based on how the Bills tore you up in those two wins last year late in the season, it makes a lot of sense to prioritize some of those speed linebackers who can be another another source of coverage and not just having to rely on the defensive backs and the safeties who, you know, seem to kind of be under a lot of pressure late in the year last year. So if you can get some coverage linebackers, it makes a lot of sense for your defense. You know, I think, obviously, going back to J.C. Jackson, it's it hurts. You know, it's, it's not something that is going to be easily overcome. But I think if the Patriots can prioritize, you know, cornerback depth in the draft, and there are some really good cornerbacks this year, the Patriots may not be in such bad shape by the time training camp rolls around, and you might be able to notice that, okay, they might be all right in that area. You know, I'm curious to see what someone like Sean Wade can do. You know, he was a highly, highly touted cornerback coming out of Ohio State when he went into the draft a couple of years ago. He's someone who I think still has good ability. Miles Bryant has shown flashes 
of being really good at times in the last two years. Jonathan Jones is returning from, uh, I think it was the shoulder surgery. You know, so you have some guys who can play, and undoubtedly, if you draft a cornerback or two, you know, you might come into training camp to be like, okay, this group may not be as bad as we think it's going to be with the loss of J.C. Jackson. So, you know, that's probably it for my spiel on the Patriots and, and free agency. I'm curious to see what they do the rest of the time, you know, if they look to sign someone like Juju Smith-Schuster, who is still unsigned, is someone that you could bring in for a small deal. Be curious to see what the Patriots can do. Um, but I don't think that I have any issue with what's been going on recently. The players that you've brought back, it all makes sense to bring them back. So I think that this is not something that I think people need to be, you know, losing it over. I think that it's, it's pretty easy to understand that the Patriots don't have as much money to spend in free agency this year. And as a result are being a little bit more quiet and are choosing not to spend it all on one player, which I think some people kind of want them to do and don't really understand the ramifications of that. So that's all I'm going to say. We're going to move on to the Red Sox. Yes, they are going to be playing spring training games this week, which seemed not possible the last time that uh, we spoke with you. Um, but they're back. They're back. They will be playing spring training games beginning on Thursday afternoon against the Twins. Red Sox, like the Patriots, have been a little bit quiet uh, in free agency, kicking back up after the lockout was lifted. Uh, the Patriots, excuse me, the Red Sox brought in two lefty relievers in Matt Strom and Jake Diekman. Uh, both of these guys, I think, expect to be guys that will come out of the bullpen. Uh, Matt Strom is a relief pitcher that pitched in San Diego last year, appeared in six games uh, last year, but has plenty of experience in the major leagues, six seasons, uh, 157 games, 25 starts, 260 innings. Um, he's had some time as a starter, um, I think the last year, or 2019, was a year that he last started with 6-11 and 11 with a 471 ERA. So, you know, he's someone who I think can be a starting pitcher in, in a pinch, but I think the Red Sox do intend to use him out of the bullpen. Um, the Red Sox also bringing in Jake Diekman from the A's. He has bounced around, has played years, a couple years in Texas and Philadelphia. Um, been in the league a while. He's played... 10 years in the league, um, is a, a lefty reliever. I think, as I said, um, has kind of a, a funky delivery. So be curious to see how the Red Sox use him out of the bullpen. Um, obviously, Adam Adovino leaving to sign with the Mets. So the Red Sox obviously have, you know, maybe an eighth inning guy to uh, replace, but I think really solid to bring in two guys like uh, Strom and Diekman who are, you know, I think proven relief guys that can get guys out. So curious to see how they do this season. Um, I think that, you know, it's obvious to look at this Red Sox roster and have some kind of concerns as to, you know, what the outfield is going to look like um, and what the rest of the lineup looks like. You know, I think first base is kind of an area that 
people are not sure about. You know, obviously Bobby Dahlbeck, we all know, had a great end to last season. You know, was okay in the playoffs. Christian Arroyo is someone who I think there's a lot riding on his season. You know, I think he's penciled in as a starter at second base. Obviously, he's had some injury issues, but I think for the most part, he's been a pretty solid hitter when he's been healthy. Um, and then obviously the outfield, Jackie Bradley Jr. was brought back. It seems like he will be starting, but obviously you lose a lot of offense when you trade Jackie Bradley for Hunter Renfro, um, a guy who was you know, signed on a cheap contract last year, definitely outperformed it with the, I believe, 25 home runs last year. Maybe it was more than that. But obviously it was not someone who performed well in the playoffs. And I think that that was, you know, fairly obvious to a lot of people. So I think bringing in Jackie Bradley Jr. and kind of losing that offense, it kind of puts you in a bit of a hole in terms of what you can do offensively. The Red Sox are counting a lot on Bobby Dahlbeck and Christian Royo at the moment to pick up a lot of offense. Now, obviously, there is still room that that can change. The Red Sox, I think, rumored to be interested in Freddie Freeman, which is very interesting to me um, because I think not only do you have Dahlbeck, who's a good young player, but you also have a player like Tristan Cassis, who most likely, you know, could be someone who could make his debut this season or next. And he's a guy who plays first base. So, you know, where does that, like, how does, I'm not sure how that makes sense with Freddie Freeman. You know, I think that, you know, there's an idea that maybe you could move him to DH, but I think J.D. Martinez has made it pretty clear that he would like to, you know, stay with the Red Sox for the rest of his career. So I think, you know, if the Red Sox do decide to sign Freddie Freeman, I'm not going to be like, okay, well, where do they put him? Because obviously he's a tremendous player, you know, as an MVP level player. And I think, you know, no one would be upset if they brought him in because I think it really would strengthen what they can do um, offensively. I think especially losing a bat like Renfro and probably losing a bat like Schwarber. So from an offensive standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. Because, as I said, you're losing some offense with those two guys. And if you bring in Freddie Freeman, you know, he's more than a, he's more than a capable replacement. Um, so I think first base is definitely an area I'm curious about. Second base as well. You know, I don't know if they really believe in Christian Arroyo. Um, you know, obviously you hope that he can stay healthy. Starting pitching, I think, is also an area that they could look. Although it seems like... The starting rotation is pretty close to being set with Sale coming back and fully recovered, Ivaldi coming back, Nick Pavetta coming back after the year that he had last year, and Tanner Houck, who probably should start this season in the rotation, and Rich Hill obviously coming in, Michael Waka and James Paxton, also some other starters that the Red Sox signed. So I think close the closer really is the only other position that are area that I'm kind of curious about. Matt Barnes obviously was taken out of that role toward the end of last year. So I'd be curious to see, you know, if the Red Sox go back to him, do they go to someone like Garrett Whitlock? Very curious to see how that plays out. You know, obviously as we have spring training coming up, you know, obviously or spring training already started, you have games coming up, I should say. 
there are some guys that I think are, you know, worth watching. I think Arroyo, definitely be curious to see how well he can play. Um, you know, can he stay on the field? I think that that's the biggest thing for me. Um, you know, what does someone like um, Garrett Whitlock look like? You know, does he look good as the closer to the Red Sox? Try to play him in that role. You know, what does that look like? What does Matt Barnes look like when he's pitching in games? You know, those are two guys I'm very curious to, to watch. And I think as always, you know, the big guys are always fun to watch with Devers, Bogarts, Martinez, and Verdugo. I think you would hope that Verdugo can build off of the season that he had last year because I think if the Red Sox do, you know, not decide to bring in someone like Freddie Freeman and, you know, go into the go into the season with this lineup, you know, Alex is someone who really needs to step up and, you know, really needs to be someone that can be another big bat in their lineup. Um, because I think, you know, missing, missing those big bats like Schwarber and Renfro, there's kind of a hole in that lineup. And I think, you know, Verdugo is someone who has the ability to fill that in. So I'm curious to see what he looks like um, in some of these spring games and as the season begins. So I think that probably is going to be it for the Red Sox. Um, so now we're going to turn our attention uh, to the Revolution, who kind of had a Kind of, kind of had an interesting week last week. Obviously had the beginning of the CONCACAF, or I shouldn't say the beginning, had their first uh, matchup in the CONCACAF Champions League, the first leg um, against Pumas. They won 3 to nothing on Wednesday and looked really, really good. Um, I think Sebastian Legette had scored in that game. So he's been playing really well, so that's been good to see. Um, scoring in the first half, and then Adam Puxa scoring twice in the second half. So uh, seeing Legette do well has been really, really good to see. I think he's someone that I was curious about how he would look early on in the season. He looks really good. You know, then the Revolution come back to Major League Soccer and uh, post a pretty disappointing 3-2 uh, loss against Real Salt Lake. You know, it was a game that it seemed like you had uh, all the all the elements of a feel-good game. You know, a one nothing lead after halftime with uh, Ima Boateng scoring. Um, and then 62nd minute, Josie Altidore, minutes after coming into the game, scoring on a header, scoring his first goal um, as a member of the Revolution. And you also had the snow. And so it looked like, you know, this had the, you know, elements of a game that, you know, you could feel good about. And then... Everything came apart late in the game. The uh, Real Salt Lake with three goals late and beat the Revolution 3-2 to two in the snow. It was definitely not a feel-good win at all, or feel-good game at all. You know, the Revolution just had trouble closing the game out, you know, and that's something that uh, is something that crept up uh, quite a bit in the early part of last season. So I'm not exactly super excited about that. I mean, I think... It's weather, you know, it's it's crappy weather. And I think that, you know, sure, it had something to do with the tying goal, for sure. Um, 
but I think, you know, obviously you don't want to make any excuses because as much as it's, you know, a weather game, it's a weather game for both teams. And I think, you know, it doesn't really benefit each team, but I also think that, you know, it is an extreme weather game. You're probably not going to be playing in a game like that the rest of the season. So as much as it's a frustrating loss, you know, you never want to blow a multiple goal lead that late in the game. You know, it is a game where it's like, okay, you kind of don't want to get too low after a loss like that. And I know that it's easy to when you lose a game like that. But I also think, you know, it's your third game of the season in Major League Soccer. And I think, you know, there still is a lot of season left. There's a lot of things to work on. Um, and so I don't think, you know, it's a huge cause for concern for this team. I'm going to be curious to see how they rebound um, in the second leg of the CONCACAF Champions League against Pumas, which will be 10-15 tomorrow night, and then the Revolution return to MLS action Saturday night against Charlotte. So, curious to see how the Revolution do in the CONCACAF, you know, obviously with the 3-0 advantage after the first leg, the Revs I don't think have to do anything spectacular offensively, you probably would like to see some improvements defensively um, in this game. So I think that's the biggest thing for me to look for um, in this game Wednesday night. And then obviously Charlotte, the Revolution will play against um, and then don't have a Major League Soccer match until April 2nd. So assuming if the Revolution can advance in CONCACAF, they might be able to play in the semifinals, which I'm not sure who they have a chance to play. But... It'd be great to see if the Revs could advance. So I think after that, we will do a quick update on the NHL. Obviously, we had a trade yesterday. Josh Manson of the Ducks traded to Colorado for uh, defenseman Drew Hellison. You may remember him as a, or you may know him as a uh, Boston College Eagle um, who has played um, the last three years with BC, um, the Ducks also receiving a second round pick in next year's draft. So it's a good trade for Colorado. You know, I think that getting some some beef on that defensive on that on that blue line is huge for a team like that. I think they're a team that really needs to be able to have guys that can be you know shut down defensemen because they think. Obviously, we all know what Colorado can do scoring, but I think getting a defenseman like that is is huge for a team like that. So um, the other thing that's interesting is the Ducks might be signaling that they are willing to trade some pieces, and the Bruins are certainly a team that could go, that could jump on um, acquiring some players from Anaheim. The Bruins and the Ducks have trade history. Uh, they actually made two trades in two thousand. It was 2020. I think it was actually weeks before um, everything had shut down. But the Bruins had made two trades that that trade deadline season. I think that was the year that they acquired Nick Ritchie and Andre Kasha. So, you know, Anaheim could be a team that the Bruins look at. Are they interested in someone like Hampus Lindholm? Could they be interested in someone like Ricard Raquel? You know, that could be very interesting to see, uh, to monitor, you know, as we approach the trade deadline. Um, Austin Matthews was suspended two games for a cross-check to the face of Erasmus Dahlin. 
and Jacob Chikrin was injured in the Bruins-Coyotes game over the weekend. He is out two to four weeks, so probably takes him out of any type of trade talk. You know, I think that obviously there's some people that didn't believe he was really ever going to be a trade chip, but I think this kind of confirms it, that he almost certainly uh, will not be traded. Um, Lawson Kraus with the hat trick for the Coyotes in the only NHL game last night. Coyotes beat the Senators 5-3. to three. So now we will take a look at the um, standings in the Eastern Conference. Um, in the Metro, Carolina still leads with 87 points. They are the number one team in the the Eastern Conference, just a point ahead of Florida, who leads the Atlantic. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh currently in second, and then the Rangers are third. And then in the Atlantic, obviously Tampa Bay and Toronto, second and third. The Bruins in that first wild card position. 8-1-1 one, and one in their last 10 games, and they are just two points back of Toronto and five points back of Tampa Bay. So, you know, this tells you that the uh, Bruins are right there. The Bruins are right there for, you know, taking over a spot in the Atlantic, probably third, maybe even second if they get hot enough. So that is also something that I think should motivate Don Sweeney to swing for the fences and do something really crazy because I think you do have a really a really good team this year. And I think if this is potentially it for Patrice Bergeron, I think that you really do need to, to go in and try to get someone like Tomas Hurdle. I'm, I'm serious about that. I think acquiring someone like that would put the Bruins, I don't want to say over the top, but I think would put them in a similar category as Tampa Bay as a team that could give them some issues if the Bruins can, you know, acquire a player of um, Hurdle's caliber. Uh, Washington is in that second wildcard spot in the Eastern Conference. Columbus is the next closest wildcard team, 11 points back of Washington. In the West, Colorado leads with 89 points. They lead the NHL currently in the lead for the President's Trophy. Uh, St. Louis second place in the central, Minnesota third. Bruins will visit them tomorrow night in in Minneapolis. In the Pacific, Calgary leads with 79 points, followed by L.A. with 74, and then Edmonton with 68. With the wildcard position, Nashville is in that first wildcard spot with 72 points, and then Vegas is clinging to that second spot with 68 points. Dallas is one point back. Vancouver is three points back. Winnipeg and Anaheim are four points back. Things are getting very dicey for Vegas as they, you know, hold on to that last wild card spot. But every team behind them, except for Anaheim, have games in hand on them. So things could get very, very interesting. And also tonight, we have plenty of games on the NHL schedule. I believe that there are 10, including the Bruins game. Dallas will travel to Toronto to take on the Leafs at 7. Arizona and Montreal will play at 7 at the Bell Center. Anaheim travels to New York to play the Rangers. And the Islanders travel to take on Washington. All those games are at 7. Pittsburgh and Nashville. Vegas and Winnipeg will play at 8. Bruins, Blackhawks, 
at 8.30, Toronto, or excuse me, Detroit and Edmonton at 9, New Jersey and Vancouver at 10, and then Colorado, LA, Florida, and San Jose at 10.30, late tonight. So I think now I'll move on, taking a look at some NBA notes. Believe me, I did not forget about March Madness. We are going to get to that. Um, but I thought it made sense just to cover some quick NBA stuff. Um, Carl Anthony Towns, 60 points last night in the Timberwolves win over the Spurs. Uh, the Timberwolves are having a really good season. Um, and Cat especially is having a really good year. 60 points, 17 rebounds last night. Obviously, Steph Curry, 47 points in the Warriors win last night. Celtics play them tomorrow night. It was announced that the Warriors and the Wizards are going to play preseason games in Japan next season. Um, and obviously, I meant to say, you know, during the Kevin Garnett uh, retirement ceremony talk that uh, KG and Ray Allen uh, officially burying the hatchet. Uh, so that was good to see. It was good to see that they were able to to come together. It was a nice moment with the hug between the two of them. And then obviously, Paul Pierce getting in on that too. So that was really nice to see. Um, taking a look at the NBA standings, the Heat still first place in the East, two games ahead of the Bucks. The Sixers are in third, Bulls in fourth. Celtics currently in fifth place, just four games out of first place, two games out of second place. So that is also another reason why this road trip coming up is going to be huge. If the Celtics can try to maybe make some moves in the Eastern Conference, see if they can be a team that gets a home court that gets home court advantage in the first round. The Cavaliers are in sixth, and then the Raptors, the seven seed in the play-in, followed by the Nets, the Hawks, and the Hornets. Um, all four of those teams have won. Um, at least two games in a row. Nets and Hawks have won three in a row. Hornets two in a row. And then the Raptors four in a row. Um, and then Washington is four games back of the last play-in spot. So they have lost four in a row. In the Western Conference, Phoenix has clinched a playoff spot. They're actually the first team in the NBA to do that. They have a seven and a half game lead over the Grizzlies and the Warriors. The Jazz are in fourth. Dallas in 5th, Denver 6th, Minnesota in that first play-in spot, just a game and a half back of 6th place, um, and then the Clippers in 8th, Lakers in ninth, Pelicans in 10th, and then you have Portland just a game and a half back of that last locked card spot. The NBA schedule tonight, you got a couple games. Uh, Memphis and Indiana tip off at 7, Brooklyn travels down to Orlando, that tip is also at 7. Um, and then the Pistons travel to Miami, 7.30, and then 8 o'clock on NBA TV. The Suns, the NBA-leading Suns, will face off against the Pelicans. So now we will get into the tournament. Yeah, we're getting into the tournament. It's finally here. Uh, great to see with the uh, selection. Selection Sunday on Sunday with both the men's and the women's brackets. Um, obviously... Hopefully you have listened to the episode that I did uh, with Matt Flew a couple weeks ago talking about this tournament. So exciting to see some of these teams in action. Um, that The tournament for the men at least will start tonight. I'll take a look at the women's bracket in just a moment. But yeah, March Madness is here. It's such an exciting time of year. 
Um, you know, both tournaments are always so much fun to watch. You always have the Cinderella teams. You always have teams that have these tremendous players that, you know, you enjoy watching for years to come professionally, whether that's in the NBA or in the WNBA. So, um, and, you know, who can forget the, the coaches and the tremendous coaches that, you know, put so much into a team's, put so much effort into their teams, you know, both the men's and the women's coaches. And, you know, it's always such a treat to be able to, you know, watch tournament games when you have the likes of, you know, Don Staley, you know, Gino Auriemma, Mike Krzyzewski, you know, all the, the legendary coaches. It is, it is always so interesting to be able to, you know, watch tournament games that feature some of the best coaches in the history of basketball. So that is always fun. So we'll get into the men's tournament. The uh, first four will kick off tonight with two games, 16 seed Texas, Texas Southern and 16 seed, 16 seed Texas A&M Corpus Christi will play at 640 tonight. And then Wyoming and Indiana playing at 910 tonight. And then tomorrow, you have Rutgers in Indiana at 9:10, and then Wright State against Bryant at 6:40. You have a, a couple of New England schools that are in, that are involved in this year's tournament, which is always kind of cool. Uh, so you have Bryant, Providence, UConn, and Vermont. So you have plenty of teams representing uh, New England. So obviously the four number one seeds, no real surprise. I think based on how how these teams did in the conference tournament. Gonzaga getting the number one seed in the West. They're the overall top seed in the West. And you have Arizona, top seed in the South. Kansas, the number one seed in the Midwest. And then Baylor, the number one seed in the East. So the Big 12 getting two number one seeds. Um, so I think just overall looking at this bracket, it doesn't really seem like any of these number one seeds have a necessarily easy run to the final four. You know, I will say that even looking at a team like Gonzaga, you still have some good teams in that bracket. You know, with Arkansas, the four seed, Texas Tech, the third seed, they're always a tough team. Um, and then Duke, obviously, they're very talented. Um, and then obviously, you know, playing with probably a chip on their shoulder with, you know, Coach K's final season. So, It'll be curious to see how that bracket plays out. UConn is in the 5-12 matchup against New Mexico State, and then UVM or Vermont is in the matchup with um, Arkansas in the first round. So that will be some interesting games uh, to watch featuring the local teams. In the East, Baylor with the top seed, obviously. You have a couple of really good teams in this bracket. Uh, Purdue has had an excellent year. They're the third seed. Kentucky has had a good finish to the season. They're the second seed. And then you have UCLA, obviously a team that made um, a run all the way to the Final Four last year. Um, so I think that they're definitely a team to watch. I wouldn't be surprised if they make it out of that bracket. Baylor obviously is going to be a tough out after winning last year. They return a couple of players from last year's championship team. Um, so I think they're definitely a threat, you know, to go back to back, looking to become the first team since Florida in 2006 and 2007. But I don't think that they make it out of this bracket. I think that 
um, UCLA or Kentucky will make a run to the Final Four. In the Midwest, you have Kansas, the top seed. This is probably the bracket that I believe Kansas may be a team that goes out earlier than we expect. Um, and I say that because you have San Diego State, an eighth seed, that I think is a really, really good defensive team. They're not a team that scores a lot. Obviously, that could be a recipe for disaster. But if they play some good, hard-nosed defense, you might be, you may not be surprised if they beat Kansas. I know that that is a really crazy thing to say, but I think that Kansas, to me, might not be the best. There might be the weakest one seed out of all the ones, and obviously, with me saying that, they'll probably win the whole thing, but I think that they are the most likely one seed to not be to not make it to the Sweet 16. Um, some other teams in this bracket, Providence, obviously, I'm a little concerned about them in their first round game as they're playing a San Diego State team that loves to play fast and play in transition. Providence is a team that likes to, you know, slow the pace down. Um, so I'm going to be curious to see how that game looks. Um, Iowa against Richmond is also a game I'm interested in. Iowa, the fifth seed, Richmond, the 12th. Um, both of those teams, I think, coming in with good conference tournament performances. And then lower down in the bracket, you have a team like Wisconsin and a team like Auburn, both of those teams that I think are certainly capable of going to the Final Four. Um, Auburn, I think their success is really going to hinge on Walker Zimmerman and Jabari Smith. You know, their two best players, obviously. You know, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, identify their best players, but their best players have to be their best players. And I think that the other, the, the teammates of them, have to recognize when the two of them are playing at the highest level and being able to get them the ball in key moments because they think that is something that could be a problem for Auburn. And it has been a problem for them lately that they tend to be a little bit too slow on offense. You know, they're a tremendous defensive team. Arguably, they might be the best defensive team in the country, but offensively is the area that I'm concerned about them, and I just don't know if they're going to be able to get enough offensively, I think that they should be fine in the little bracket that they have. You know, Wisconsin's in there, LSU is in there, USC is in there, all some decent teams, but I think they should be able to make it out of there. But what's going to make the difference for them is going to be their offense. And that's going to be the difference between whether they go home in the Sweet 16 or if they go to the Final Four. So that's a team I'm interested in watching. They play against Jacksonville State in their first game on Friday. In the South Bracket, Arizona, obviously, the top seed. You have some solid teams in here that I think are going to be playing with chips on their shoulder. Illinois and Ohio State had, uh, I believe both of them lost in the second round last year. So they definitely are going to be going in trying to prove that last year was a fluke. Um, and you also have a team... Tennessee, who was a third seed, who I think definitely has some beef as to why they were not a second seed um, instead of instead of Auburn. You know, I think Tennessee certainly has a right to be upset, you know, winning the SEC tournament. Auburn obviously lost in the first in their first game. So I think Tennessee could be a team that plays with a chip on their shoulder and they could be a team that could be a 
uh, Final Four sleeper that a lot of people are forgetting about. Obviously, you have Villanova at the second seed. I think that they're a popular pick to win it all. Great coaching. They're really sound, fundamental team that I think playing the way that they are capable of, they can win the whole thing. So they are another team that I think not enough people are talking about. I mean, I think everyone wants to talk about Gonzaga and Arizona and Baylor in particular, but I think Tennessee and Villanova are two teams that could absolutely win the whole tournament. Um, me personally, I believe Gonzaga is going to win. I know that that is kind of a cop-out, and I said this on the uh, podcast I did with Matt, but you know, I just think that there's something to be said for a team that comes up short the year before, not necessarily in the championship, but comes up short in you know, the, the tournament, or maybe they lose a heartbreaker to a Cinderella team. You know, I think that that kind of is similar to what we saw with Virginia a bunch of years back, losing to a 16 seed and then coming back and winning it the next year. I think that that could be a thing. That could be something that we see happen again. Um, but I think in Zaga, this is the year for them. And yeah, I know that it's kind of a cop-out picking the number one overall seed, but um, they have been a really good team all year, and I think that um, they play Illinois in the championship. That's my prediction officially. So really excited for that, for the tournament to get underway. Starts tonight with the first four. And now looking at the women's bracket, they are starting with uh, a first four, I believe, for the first time. So they have 68 teams in the women's tournament, which will be Great to see their first four kicks off tomorrow night with games. With Geico, we can easily bundle Sorry home. about that. Um, with two games in the, in the first four tomorrow night, DePaul and Dayton playing at 9 o'clock, and then Howard University playing against U. I W. I believe that that might be. I'm actually not sure what that uh, abbreviation is, um, and then on Thursday the first four kicks off: Mount St. Mary's against Longwood, and then Florida State against Missouri State. So the number one seeds, uh, number one seed in the Wichita region, Louisville; number one in the Bridgeport region, NC State. Number one in the Spokane region, Stanford, and then number one in the Greensboro region, South Carolina. So some excellent some excellent teams that I think have been on top for the majority of the season. You know, this is always a tournament that you never know what to expect. Um, I always think that, you know, certainly there are some number one teams that I think are going to roll through and get to the Final Four rather easily. There could be some number one seeds that have issues this year. Uh, a team to watch, Iowa, they're the second seed in the Greensboro region. I think they're a team that could present some issues for South Carolina if they meet in the uh, regional finals. Uh, Stanford, obviously, they had a tremendous year last year. Honestly, it is escaping me who won the championship last year, but I know that Stanford went really far. Um, South Carolina, obviously, great coaching, great talent. Um, they are honestly my pick to win. But, you know, UConn is always lurking with uh, Paige Beckers coming back from her injury that kept her out for the majority of the season. 
Uh, so I'm really excited to see what she can do. Um, so I think that that is an interesting storyline to watch. As for some uh, New England teams, the UMass women are in the tournament for the first time in quite a while. They will play against uh, Notre Dame on They'll play against Notre Dame on Saturday night at 7.30. Obviously, UConn is in it. They will play against Mercer Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock. Just going to scan quickly for any other uh, New England teams that are involved. I think that that might be it. But regardless, it's going to be a great tournament. Both of these tournaments really excited for. Um, I like South Carolina in the women's bracket. I like Gonzaga in the men's bracket. So... That probably is going to be it for talking about March Madness. Enjoy the madness. Enjoy filling out brackets. And hopefully, uh, maybe you're doing a pool with money. That's always fun to do. Um, I know we've ran a little bit over the time today. Um, but I think it was pretty obvious that there was uh, plenty to talk about this week. So, um, obviously, I'm not going to be able to get away with doing a podcast and not speaking about the elephant in the room, the you know, obvious news that broke sports Twitter on Saturday night during the March Madness bracket reveal, uh, Tom Brady's coming back. Um, and so on purpose, I had said earlier in the podcast that, you know, at the end of the day, my opinions on this podcast are just that. They're just opinions. And you don't need to listen to this podcast and believe everything I say. You don't need to listen to this podcast and, you know, take everything I say as, you know, something that's fact. Um, so I will be quite honest here with the news about Brady coming back. Um, I'll be on and yeah, I'll be completely honest that it's not really something that I'm excited about. Um, I just think that you, you go through all this you go, you go through all this this hoopla, all, all this whatever you want to call it, that it makes it seem like you're retiring. And you take out an entire, you know, Instagram post thanking the entire organization, you know, in Tampa Bay. And it just is like, it went, it went to the, 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 the place of basically retiring without saying that you're retiring and doing that on purpose because, you know, you want to leave the door open that you could come back and it just is like so the, the problem that I have is if that's the thought process that Tom had that he wanted to leave the door open you know why even retire in the first place you know it just seems so very disingenuous to lead people to believing that you are walking away and that you're stepping away but then to come back you know within a couple months and say, oh, like, I'm actually coming back. You know, it would be different if Tom spends a year away from football. You know, it would be different if he takes this entire season, he doesn't play this entire season, and then recognizes that he really misses the game and wants to come back and play another season. That's a whole nother thing than basically saying, you know, you're retiring, and then weeks later being like, oh, no, I'm actually coming back. You know, sure, could his mind have changed? That's absolutely, that's absolutely legitimate. And I think that, yes, people are allowed to change their minds, and that's fine. 
but I just will tell you that this doesn't feel great for me as a fan of, you know, Tom. And I think, you know, th this is difficult because I don't want people to think that, you know, I, I don't like Tom Brady or, you know, I hate him or whatever. I obviously have tremendous respect for, you know, what he did with the Patriots and, you know, we owe a lot to him as Patriot fans. I think that we owe a lot of our fandom to someone like Tom Brady. And I think, yes, it's okay to respect his decision, but at the same time, I think it's totally fair to question his decision. And it's totally fair to, you know, question why, you know, he's choosing to go through all this and basically doing a, a Brett Favre. And it just is like, I just wish that, you know, he could just stay retired and enjoy the time away from the game. And I understand that, you know, wanting to play and wanting to do something and then walking away from it and then deciding that you really don't want, you did, really didn't want to walk away, you know. It's not something that I think I will ever understand. It's not really anything that I think a lot of us can understand, you know, being able to do something for such a long time and then having a hard time detaching from that. And I get it and I totally understand it, but it's just something about this rubs me the wrong way. And it just kind of makes Tom look like, you know, an, an, an attention hog that, you know, you know, I don't know, you know, and again, I'm just speculating here, but it's almost like he, you know, maybe in a way got upset that, you know, Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson and all these other quarterbacks are getting the spotlight. And, you know, I don't know, that's not something that I want to believe, to be perfectly honest, but, you know, it's just, I'm just not a, not, not a huge fan of this. And I think, um, I think that I'm allowed to have an opinion, hopefully, you know, I think, sure, if people disagree with this, that's totally fine, you know, you can be fans of Tom Brady, that's fine, but I also think, like, you know, it's, it's fair to, to question his, um, you know, reasons for, for doing this, and, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be, Tom's going to be tremendous this next year, you know, you can be sure of this, you can be sure that Tampa Bay is going to be a team that's going to be in contention to win a Super Bowl again. I mean, every anytime Tom Tom Brady's playing and he's playing at a high level, it's always a guy that can, you know, bring a team out of the abyss and do some crazy things. We saw it for years. Um, so I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I felt like it made sense to reference this, but I'll be honest, I don't really care about this. You know, my... Um, focus right now on football is on the Patriots and how do they get better um, and it's not really about whether Tom Brady's coming back or not um, I don't know it just the whole thing just seems incredibly disingenuous and not really fair to people that were pouring their hearts out and you know congratulating him on a great career and no just kidding I'm gonna play so it's like you know it opens up a whole nother can of worms what if he retires in two years? Are we going to do this again? Is he going to fake retiring again? Like, is he going to do this again? So it's just like, I don't know. Just, uh, it's just kind of annoying to me. But again, at the end of the day, it's my opinion. You know, it doesn't, 
mean that you have to have the same opinion. You know, I would hope that folks listening to this podcast don't think the exact same way that I do. You know, but, you know, whatever. You guys can let me know how you feel about anything. You know, any questions that you have, any kind of things that you'd like for me to talk about, I'm always open to um, any type of constructive criticism or any type of things that you want me to focus more on. You know, I'm always open to that. So uh, that being said, I think that uh, does that's going to do it for me today. Um, hope you all enjoyed listening. You can uh, listen to uh, this and other episodes on uh, Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. You can follow our social media pages on Twitter and on Facebook for uh, the latest updates. Looking forward for looking forward to you guys listening to a conversation I had with Eric Bellier yesterday. So that will be something to look forward to later this week. And uh, we will talk to you folks next week. Everyone get outside this week because spring is back and it's absolutely glorious. So get outside. Remember to stay safe. Uh, but yes, please get outside. It's going to be beautiful this week in the Boston area. So hopefully everyone enjoys that. Everyone enjoys March Madness and everyone enjoys, you know, free agency with baseball and football. A lot of things happening all at once, but uh, it's really exciting. So uh, that being said, I will talk to you folks next week.